Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. It's been some time uh, since we are in this chapter, but it is a chapter that is rich and worthy of attention for any number of reasons, some of which we have already considered and some which we shall consider today. We're going to be reading, beginning at verse 25, right after we pray. Father, we come to your word. We give you thanks for the Holy Spirit through Luke writing these words for our encouragement, for our instruction, for our hope. And we pray that the Holy Spirit who has written them through Luke so long ago would come and would make them alive in our hearing today. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 15, uh, we have already considered the uh, story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and uh, last time, the lost son, what is uh, often referred to as the prodigal son, which has gotten the bulk of the attention um, in this chapter. Uh, but it's worth pointing out that there are three lost things um, in this chapter, and we're going to be looking at actually a fourth lost thing, and uh, that's the elder brother uh, today. So um, let's begin by reading in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. And he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Three points this morning. First of all, the focus. Secondly, the father, and thirdly, the final point. The focus, the father, and the final point. You may recall we have been looking at this chapter, and so far we've seen uh, many things. In the first sermon uh, on the lost sheep and the lost coin, uh, you were called to see whether you were like the Pharisees or whether you were like Christ. In the second sermon on the prodigal son, uh, we saw how Christ wants you to think about God. As a loving father yearning, his love yearning for the lost and rejoicing over the lost that is found. Today is kind of a combination of both those things. Jesus continues to teach you how to think of the father while at the same time making you take a long, hard look at yourself in the process. So as we go through this sermon, 
I want you to see it, I want you to hear it as a mirror, if you will, all right, of in which you might see yourself. And if you see yourself, then take to heart the message that Jesus speaks here. First of all, the focus. Although the popular uh, title of this parable, uh, or parables, in chapter 15 focuses on the prodigal, uh, to the detriment of the lost coin and the lost sheep, and certainly to the detriment of the elder brother, there's a strong case that the focus in this chapter is really the elder brother, all right? Uh, and those he represents. He represents the Pharisees, and in the hearts of most men lurks the same spirit which is not wholly destroyed by conversion. I know that because I see it in myself. I am a recovering Pharisee. Note the context and the audience to whom the parables are spoken. Look back at verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> it's why it's important, all right, that we point out that a text without a context is nothing but a pretext. People cut quickly to the prodigal son, neglect the lost sheep and the lost coin, or even if they include the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, they neglect it. Why is Jesus preaching these parables to begin with? Look at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Get the point? Do you see the focus? There, there are the Pharisees, right? There they are, and the scribes. Over in the corner as Jesus is hanging out with sinners, right? And they're over there mumbling, grumbling. They, they don't like it. Doesn't he know who these people are? Doesn't he know what kind of people they are? Doesn't he know they're not our kind of people? Doesn't he know what activities, what behavior they conduct themselves in? Doesn't he know? Because of that, Jesus taught this parable. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. So I hope you can see, all right, that the focus is really them. Right? That's why Jesus is telling these parables. All right? <clears throat> As they listened to Jesus teach, they could see where he was going. Now, you need to know that in Jewish culture, all right, there's a strong sense of family responsibility, all right? And they would have known that it was the elder brother's duty to go and find the lost son. But what do we see? He's doing nothing of the sort. That's them. That's them. They don't care about the lost. They don't care about the strangers. They don't care about the sinful, all right? But the elder brother did nothing of the sort, right? Instead, when the lost prodigal returns, he's indignant. Look at verse 29. He answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. Very interestingly, the word here is, is really slaved. All these years I've slaved for you. I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, those of us who are parents know this phrase very well, right? Child disobeys, it's like, hey, look at what your son is doing. Oh, as if he's not my son. 
this son of yours. What is it? It's assigning blame. Right? No, he's indignant at the lost being found. And that was the sting in the tail for the Pharisees. You need to see this to understand what's going on here. All right? Now, in the first sermon, the question was, what, did, what does it mean that Jesus is eating with sinners? But now the question is, what does it mean that the Pharisees are not eating with sinners? Or if I can put it this way, what does it mean that you and I are not eating with sinners? This is a passage for long-time churchgoers who don't struggle as much, as much with running from God as they struggle with condemning those who do. For people who tend to think of other people who need this message, <coughs> they need to hear this. Ah, don't make that mistake. Everyone here needs to hear this. I need to hear this. Many fail to see the elder brother as less than admirable. Consider, I mean, really, let's be realistic and honest with ourselves, all right? He's steadily industrious. He's late coming in from the field. He's working hard. He's putting in overtime, being diligent. He's conscientious. He's consistent. He's dependable. I never disobey. He's faithful. He's just. He's stable. For all intents and appearances, this is an admirable stand-up guy. So what's wrong? Well, look at verse 29. The whole way he relates to his father is wrong. Look at it. All these many years I've slaved for you. I never disobeyed. What kind of relationship is that? What kind of relationship do you have to the father? He relates to his father as a slave to a master. There's no idea of being a son or even a member of the family. When he speaks to his father, he doesn't call him father. When he refers to his brother, he doesn't call him a brother. You get it? He, he doesn't even think of himself as a member of the family. How he sees his father is as an issuer of commands, a tyrant, and himself a slave paying obedience. He was geographically near to his father, but spiritually, he was the one who lived in a far country. Spiritually, he's lost too. Get it? He's alienated from the Father's love and from the Father's grace. Ultimately, it was he, look at the text, and not the prodigal who refused to go in. He refused to believe the Father really loved him. Do you know somebody like that? Maybe you saw them in the mirror this morning. Contrast what the elder brother says to his father 
with what John says. Look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. It's got to be one of the most absolutely astounding verses in all of sacred scripture. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. See, sometimes all translation involves interpretation. Sometimes it's not the best interpretation. The word here is actually an imperative. It's behold. John says, behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us. What kind of love is it that we should be called children of God? He's, he's astonished by this love. What, what kind of love is it that loves hell-deserving sinners? What kind of love is it that embraces them, loves them, showers them with blessings? What kind of love is that? Behold, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we, you and me, hell-deserving sinners, should be called the children of God? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death Pursued, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? The astonishment rings out as he punctuates the sentence with the very next words. Look at the text. And so we are. It's almost with incredulity he mouths the words, and can it be? Yes, and so we are. And then compare that with the elder brother. All these years I've slaved for you. You see the contrast? Which is more descriptive of your spiritual condition? St. Clair Ferguson writes, Many Christians retain some measure of the spirit of the elder brother. They remain at a distance from God. They may even regard obedience in the Christian life as a form of slavery. Emotionally and psychologically, their view of God's gracious purpose is warped and yields reluctantly to the influences of God's word. Suspicion of the Father is more characteristic of them than fellowship with him. They cannot trust him, and so they do not know the joy of self-abandonment to him as their father in heaven. They experience only what Paul calls a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. The Christian church, he goes on to say, the Christian church is plagued today, as in other times, with slick and immediate answers to such spiritual difficulties. But what is really needed is a biblical answer. Precisely because they are theological as well as emotional or psychological problems. For their root lies in our idea of God and how we think of our relationship to Him. No shortcut. 
that tries to bypass the patient unfolding of the true character of God and our relationship to him as his children can ever succeed in providing long-term spiritual therapy. How do you view God? Is it like John? Is it like the hymn writer? And can it be? Or is it the elder brother? All these years I've slaved for you. I never disobeyed. Can I tell you? That attitude grieves God as much as the sin of a prodigal. The elder brother is ungrateful because he doesn't fully understand grace. He's self-righteous, as all self-righteousness is, because he expected, he deserved to be treated better because of his obedience. He's loveless for the lost because he's too convinced of his own righteousness. He didn't see himself as a sinner. He didn't see himself as lost. He didn't see himself as helpless and hopelessly in need of grace that can only come from God. Hopeless and helplessly in need of salvation and love from a Father in heaven. That's a distortion of Christianity. And it's not the Christian life at all. John Piper writes, what happens when we relate to God that way? Everything is distorted. We are disunited and alienated from the needy and sinners. Why? Because we feel intuitively that we've worked hard to stay right with God. There's no way that those who haven't worked like we have are going to come in here as Johnny come lately's and mooch off what's rightfully ours by such long-term, hard, loyal slave labor. Thinking wrongly about our relationship to God like this alienates us from weak and sinful people. It makes us angry and resentful of mercy. Instead of rejoicing with the Father, we pout about our superior merit being overlooked. It makes us into blamers. The elder brother says, when this son of yours came, not when my lost brother came home, but this son of yours, when, relating to, when we are relating to God as slave to master on the basis of our hard work instead of child to father on the basis of trust and grace, we will be ready even to blame God for the mess-ups in our life. This is the point. The father's not just trying to get the son to perform the right action. He's trying to awaken him to what a relationship of love is like. What's your relationship with God like? Do you view him as a taskmaster? Do you view him as a cosmic killjoy who ruins all your desires and your fun? Or do you view him as a father 
in heaven who has loved you with a love from before the foundation of the world, who looks down on you in your misery and your sin and sees none of it, but only Christ and His righteousness. As if you had never sinned nor been a sinner. As if you were as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for you. Do you see the focus here? Don't miss it. Secondly, look at the Father. What does the Father say to such a person? If the mirror reflects you, what does the Father have to say to you? Remember the beginning of the chapter. Jesus is at the table with drug dealers, with cartel members, with prostitutes, looking up at such who are doing well and murmuring. This is what Jesus says to those who have grown hard and merciless, to those who have become excessively separatistic, and who feel disgust at sinners more often than compassion. Can I interject a moment of reality? It's Pride Month. It's Parade Day on Fifth Avenue. How do you view such people. Does the thought of the behavior they engage in disgust you? These are people that are lost. These are people who are like sheep without a shepherd. These were people who were, yes, no doubt, sinful and alienated from God but in need of mercy and love and compassion. Preston Spinkle, I looked at a book on my shelf today, talks about, yeah, the title of his book is Why Homosexuality is Not an Issue. That's the subtitle. The title of people who are to be loved. How many male, female homosexuals get entrapped in that lifestyle simply because of abuse in younger years or misplaced desire for love and affection from a father. And we have a father who loves sinners. And if the behavior in which they engage disgusts you, Look in the mirror. Your sin, my sin, is a foul stench in the nostrils of God. And yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
There's nobody in this room to whom God said, get your act together and then come talk to me. There's nobody in this room to whom God's word came and said, when you clean up your act, come back. No, it was while you were in rebellion against God, with fists raised against him, in the stench and the muck and mire of your sin, that God reached down from on high and for no other reason than his own good pleasure, plucked you as a brand from the fire, drew you to himself with cords of compassion, and despite your sin and misery, embraced you in loving arms, forgave you, cleansed you, dressed you, made you new. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We need hearts of compassion more than we need disgust and outrage. Look at the text. Look at verse 28. The son was angry and refused to go in. But note the father. The father came out to him. He deals with them the same as the prodigal. Jesus came to save hypocrites as well as harlots. The father went out to him. Look at verse 28. And entreated him. The father pleaded with him. The elder brother said his father was a tyrant issuing commands. What does the father do? He entreats and he pleads with him. Even though he has a right to command his son. The father's not angry at his selfishness, his resentment, his rudeness. Because he doesn't want slavish obedience. He entreats, he appeals, he pleads, he appeals to the son's heart. Why? Because the father's not just trying to get the son to perform the right behavior. The father's trying to get the son to see what a relationship of love is like. Look at verse 31. And he said to him, Son. Son. After the son's bitter, angry complaint, how does the father respond? My son. It's a term of endearment. Some of you have been around long enough to know that my wife calls me Tati or Tat. It comes from my adopted Jewish Christian mother many, many years ago in Brooklyn. The Yiddish word is tatala. It's a term of endearment. It's not just son, it's my dear, affectionate son. So my wife continues in my deceased Jewish 
Christian mother's absence to refer to me with that term of endearment. It's that term of endearment that the father uses here. My son. With one word, the father exposes all the deep distortion in the elder brother's heart. It shows him that the relationship is built on a wrong foundation, obedience. Listen, he says, my son, if you're ever to come into my banquet, this is the relationship you must have. I have, look, it goes on, look in verse 31. My son, you are always with me. That's the essence of the relationship, is it not? You're always with me. John Piper again says, with me. You are a child, I am your father, and you are with me. With me. With me. Here is the deepest void in the elder brother's heart. He lived in the house of the father and found no satisfaction from being with the father. Some of the most ominous words in the elder brother's mouth are these, you've never given me a kid. Now that's strange. Here is the heir of the estate. He has at his disposal flocks of goats and herds of cattle. He has a father who is manifestly kind and gracious. What then do these hard, indicting words mean? They are the words of a person for whom the grace and glory of his father have ceased to be his treasure. They are the words of a person whose heart is with his friends outside the family and who's feeling locked into the father's table when he would really rather be with others. Piper concludes, oh, how we need to pray that our love would be to God, the giver, and not to his gifts. Notice what else he says. Verse 31, my son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Everything I have is yours. What's he saying? He's saying it's an inheritance for a son, not wages for a slave. All that is mine is yours. If you'll come in as a sinner to be with sinners, don't relate to me as a slave. Receive my grace and let it flow through you to the prodigal brother and to other sinners. You see, my friends, this and this alone is what will generate compassion rather than outrage and disgust at sinful sinners. Is the grace and mercy that has been shown to you and that has been shown to me, that has enveloped you, that has embraced you, that has rewarded you with blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, to melt your heart, to soften your heart, to give you the heart of the Father.
for lost, helpless, hopeless sinners. Well, what's the final point? The chapter kind of ends somewhat precariously. The point is somewhat obscure. And the point is this. Jesus is the true elder brother. If you're a child of God, he's your elder brother. Jesus is the true elder brother who, unlike the Pharisees, came to seek and to save the lost. He's the elder brother who reveals the heart of God to sinners. Look at Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. And when he drew near and he saw the city, that's Jerusalem, he wept over it. When was the last time you wept for someone that was lost? Whenever I get to this verse, I think of Keith Green. Jen Basili and I love Keith Green. That one song, my heart is cold, my prayers are ice. Devoid of compassion, grace, and love for the lost. Look at verse 42. Would that you, even you, Jerusalem, center the people who have a stubborn and disobedient heart, the center of the religious life of the people, the covenant people of God, to whom for centuries God held out His arms and drew them with cords of compassion, to whom He sent prophets, calling them to return to Him. Repent, repent, return, and I will return to you. And they did not. Those to whom He came, and they received Him not. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Julie and I were in Israel in 1994. Four, 1994. And you can see the temple. Not one stone upon another. 
When the Roman armies came in in 70 AD, they slaughtered the Jewish people so that the city ran knee-deep in blood. And Jesus anticipates that. As he did through the prophet Amos in the Old Testament long ago, he says there's a time coming when my long-suffering and my patience is going to run, run out. It's what the book of Amos is about. God's patience runs out. For centuries, he reached out to them. For centuries, he called them back, called them to return, called them to repent. A disobedient and unbelieving people, but they would not, they did not. And the northern tribes of Israel are heard from no more. And Jesus anticipates that in 70 AD, God is once again going to use the army of a foreign, unbelieving, pagan power to come in and exercise his judgment upon his own covenant people for their unbelief and for their disobedience and for the rejection of their son. If I can just make one minor digression, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't put it off another day. Don't go to sleep tonight without saying, Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because there might come a time when God's patience runs out. Today is the day of salvation. Turn from sin, trust in Jesus. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and you will find peace for your souls. Come, come. Do not resist, do not reject, do not deceive yourself. Do not say as I used to say when I was younger, oh, when I get old, I'll get serious about God. Today, if you hear his voice, but back to the chapter. Jesus anticipates this judgment that's going to come on Jerusalem. And what's his response? He weeps. He weeps. May I suggest to you that for you and me, like Keith Green, we need our hearts massaged with a fresh stream of grace from God's throne. We need our consciences cleansed by a fresh application of the blood of Jesus Christ to make us a clean slate, white as snow, and a healthy dose of meditation on the mercies of God until you can sing with the hymn writer. And can it be that you can echo the words of John, behold, what kind of love is it that would love me until your heart, your conscience, your soul my soul can weep 
like Jesus weeps over those deserving judgment and death. This is how to think about God. It's what Jesus is teaching us in this chapter. This is how you and I are to relate to God. Not as slaves, not as servants, not as performers. And you are to be like God. To seek and to save the lost. If you're here today and you're a worldly sinner, Jesus says to you, come in from the far country. Come in from outside. Come into the Father's house and relish in his forgiveness. Delight in his love. Bathe in his mercy. If you're a religious sinner, come in from the porch of hard-earned merit and performance to receive grace, grace, amazing, abounding grace to the chief of sinners. Come to the banquet of grace, forgiveness, and fellowship with an all-loving, all-satisfying Father. Amen. Lord God and Heavenly Father, help us to think of you rightly. Help of us to relate to you rightly. And help us to have your heart Jesus' heart for those that are lost, even those that are deserving of judgment and punishment, while it is yet the day of salvation. Grant this, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen and amen.